when I started doing therapy like six months ago, I was like, well, if I do twice a week, I'll be done twice as fast. <laughs> I wish like, that's how it worked. Welcome back to Pickles and Vodka, the unfiltered mental health podcast for all you hot messes out there by a hot mess. That's me. I'm Christina. Um, I'm, I'm like double the hot mess today because I'm sitting in my living room trying to record this on Sunday night and my cats are eating. Oh, no. One of them just came over and tried to grab the microphone. My neighbors are fighting upstairs, their puppies screaming, it's raining outside, and um, you can probably hear all this in the background, but you know what? That's life. Life is messy, and it's not always going to act the way you want it to, and you know, we just got to roll with it, so I hope you guys are having a great Monday so far when you listen to this. Uh, if you're new here and you're wondering like what the deal is with this podcast, um, basically, it's a place where people can talk about their mental health from a place of imperfection and vulnerability. I don't interview people who have their shit all figured out usually. Um, I interview people who are struggling and just want to talk about it because a lot of times we don't feel like we can talk about it and that allows people to keep suffering and I'm kind of tired of it. Um, that's why I started this two years ago and it's why I continue to make it. Some items I want to note, I am working on a website for the podcast. I would like to have a place where you can search episodes by topic. And in the meantime, I'm happy to say that we are now available on more platforms than we were before. We are on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify, but you probably knew that. We are on Stitcher and Google Podcasts and uh, many more. So if you haven't left a rating or a review, I would love that. I just realized that this is the first time that I've asked for this, like since I started the podcast two years ago. So yeah, if you haven't done that, that would just make my day. Uh, let's see. Um, I have been in a PHP program for my eating disorder for the last month. I. I just realized that I have been in the PHP program longer than I had been in residential before. And that's just wild. That means I've been in treatment for over two months now. And I, I can't believe it. Like the time has gone by so fast. In some ways, I feel like I haven't like gotten better at all. And, but in more ways, I've obviously made a lot of progress. I haven't binged and purged at all like since admitting myself in January. You know, I'm still struggling with the weight gain that comes with recovery and the nasty things that go on in my head. Um, I'm still dealing with that, as well as all the various traumas that continue to come up in the absence of bulimia. But I'm just really grateful that you guys have been along for the ride and continue to support me from afar. And I'm really grateful for um, your response to my last episode, The Bulimia Diaries, that I published. If you haven't heard, it was a collection of some of my personal audio journals, kind of documenting what I've been through in the last six months. And it was very raw, very real. I did not plan on sharing them when I recorded them, but I just wanted to be vulnerable. So you guys uh, responded amazingly. Like, There's no doubt in my mind that 
I just have so many people who support me and um, it's really humbling. So this is kind of scary to say this, but um, basically I don't have a job anymore. I made the decision not to go back to my job in marketing and uh, in the summer I will actually be moving back to Virginia to stay with my parents for a brief amount of time while I kind of get my shit together for lack of a better term. It was not an easy decision. If you ask me what the worst case scenario was, um, it would probably be going back home to live with my parents. To be honest, um, I moved out at 18 and I'm 28 now and I haven't gone back since, but I just knew it was the right thing to do because I've been in a really bad place this year and I just need to stabilize financially, physically, mentally, all the things, and um, just figure out what I want to do from here because I know I want to make a bunch of changes. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how yet, but I know that I need the space and the time to think about what I want to do. So my parents have generously offered to let me stay with them. So at the end of the summer, I will be making the cross-country road trip again. But before that, I will be you know, wrapping up my time here in the best way I can by seeing all the sites and visiting some amazing people after, you know, it's safe to do so, of course, and continuing to work on this podcast because this is a really important project for me. And hopefully now that I'm wrapping up PHP, I'll have more time to actually invest in finding guests as well as uh, being a guest on other shows and just doing what I love most, which is talking to you guys about mental health and hearing your inspiring stories. Speaking of which, my guest today is Rob Kalvaroski. He's a leader in reliability and maintenance as well as a mental health advocate and podcast host. He hosts Dismantling the High Performance Narrative with Lauren Williams, and they talk about being vulnerable in the performance industry. You know, what do you do when you're tired of pretending that everything's perfect? And I recorded with him a few weeks ago, and I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I hope you guys have an amazing Monday, and enjoy. I've just been sitting here for like five minutes staring into space and sipping coffee. It's been great. It's good. <laughs> what about you? How yours, how's your morning going? Uh, well, I did, I did some audio editing this morning, but I've been up since three-ish. So that's the Oh game. my God. Do Welcome. you normally wake up at three? No, no, no. Just like bad week of insomnia and anxiety and stuff. Oh, I mean, that sucks, but I guess it's a good segue into what we're talking about. Um, so, for, for, uh, first of all, do you want to just introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure, yeah. So, I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Um, I guess what's relevant for this show, so I'm the host of Dismantling the High Performance Narrative podcast, a podcast about mental health and performance. It's kind of geared towards high achiever types. And so, a little bit about me. Um, I played NCAA water polo. I was on the U18 national team in Canada. Um, I went to MIT for four years and I'm a psycho high achiever. Um, and basically since graduation, I've struggled a lot with just, I guess, the world and how the world yeah. works versus how I perceive or I need the world to work for me to survive. And so it's led to like depression, anxiety. And then in terms of like this show, 
the mental health care treatment that I've received over the years has been lacking, yeah. uh, to put it nicely. Uh, I've been on roughly like 15 different medications. I've tried a bunch of different therapists, uh, different therapies like CBT, IFS, uh, EMDR, all these different ones. And I'm still waiting for something to really click for me. I think like I've seen pockets of glimmers and then, but then still nothing has really like gotten through. And I think that's something that you probably have in common with me, right? Yeah, for sure. I, I can definitely feel your pain. Um, and it's really, I really want to thank you for taking the time to record this morning. Cause I'm, I really love what your podcast is all about. Um, I was just looking at your website before this and I really love the theme of um, success, like what the world says you have to do to be successful and the com competition, uh, not just uh, career-wise, but like I think mentally there's this idea that everyone has to be super healthy mentally and on top of their shit and happy and have their life all figured out and it's just impossible to get ahead. Yeah, and it's, it's actually so weirdly enough, it's something that's hit a wall with me in the last two days is like, had a call with an, an entrepreneur yesterday and we worked, we work with the same coach and I had her coached about a year and a half ago. And my expectation with the coach was like, I'm going to hire her because I like, I had a maintenance and reliability podcast that was like one of the top two in the world. And I hired her and I was like, Hey, you're going to help me launch a business. And then within like six months to a year, I'm going to have enough money coming in and I won't have to work at my day job anymore. And that hasn't panned out. Like I'm still at my day job. I signed a, another year contract like a few months ago. And so it's like, and, and like basically the business is like, it's not, it's growing, but it's slow, like obviously really slow. Yeah. And I, I had the, I had the call yesterday and basically what hit me was that life doesn't work the way I needed to, to survive. Like in college and in the pool, every day you could perform and you could try hard and like someone would be like, Hey, you're doing a good job. Like your coach would say, Hey, you're doing a good job. Or you would get a result that you yeah. want. And like in the classroom, you know, the more you study, the better your results are in exams and stuff. But in the world, it's like, I, I don't know if I told you this last time, but it was like, I was like, well, when I started doing therapy, like six months ago, I was like, well, if I do twice a week, I'll be done twice as fast. <laughs> I wish like, that's how it worked. I know. Right. And so I literally, I'm like, I'm literally doing it and it's like, and then my therapist is like, yeah, it's still going to take you like probably a year before <laughs> you get to a point where you can like manage yourself. And, and it just like, I don't know. It, it just feels like everything takes forever. And yeah. that's just how life is, I guess. Well, the thing that drives me crazy, no pun intended, is just that you don't get a guarantee of when it, you'll start feeling quote unquote better. Yeah. Like you can put in the work and show up th to therapy and do all the things you got to do, but you don't know if it's going to be a day or a month or a, a year, two years until, you know, things start looking up. And so that's the hardest part is just sticking with it. Yeah. And it's tough, right? Like, like I'm doing EMDR therapy now. And so like you're going into these trauma spots and I feel like I got worse, right? Hmm. Like you're opening up trauma that you didn't, that you just like, buried and I think the expectation is like well you're linearly going to get better and like it's going to be like 
when I walked in the door, I was a one and now I'm, I should be a two or a three. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. no, actually you walked in the door and then you dropped down and then maybe you came up and then you dropped down. And it's like a very, it's hard to like stay motivated. What's that saying? Uh, pain is weakness leaving your body. <laughs> kind of like <laughs> the similar thing with mental health, right? It gets harder before it gets better. So in the interest of time, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Because I don't really know anything except for your podcast and your business. Was mental health discussed in your family growing up? Nothing really was discussed in my family growing up. Emotions weren't a big thing. And so I guess like early in my life, I learned to dissociate. And sports kind of reinforces that because it's like, you're, you're shown to not show weakness and you're shown like basically my whole life. It was like, you get punched, you get kicked, you get grabbed, you get whatever you put your head down and you swim back on defense. And like, that's what you do. And it's like, it doesn't matter. And so like, that's what you're reinforced. Basically you're like, for me, it was my whole life. Like I trained three hours, two to three hours a day for like from 13 to 18. Yeah. I was going to ask if your family was super into athletics is that no. something that you did? Uh, no? <laughs> Just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my sister's a neuroscientist. Like they're like my family's a bunch of brainiacs. Like my, my sister's a neuroscientist. Uh, my parents, like they both have master's degrees and like, well, they're retired now, but they like worked as economists and marketing. So they did all the nerd stuff. <laughs> then you, you were the muscle of the family. Well, I wouldn't say I'm like that athletic. It's just I learned how to work hard. And I think like you can get very far in life if you work hard. Well, it's just like you were, you were saying earlier, like that's the allure of it is that you can work hard and see results. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. It's like, I think that's the thing is like, I think I learned early that working hard gets me seen and working hard and, and like winning gets me seen and gets me love and gets me results. And like, I basically needed that to survive. And so that's the hardest part. And that's the whole point of the other show is like, at some point that strategy ceases to work. And for me, it worked like in my first, basically my first job after college. Like I went, I worked for a mining company. I saved them $33 million and I walked into my annual review and I was like, Hey, like this is the path to success. Like I posted the biggest savings out of any engineer in the company. I am like on, I'm like, we're going to talk promotion. We're going to talk big raises. We're going to talk all these things. And I walked out of that meeting. They gave me 3% raise, which was the minimum they could possibly give me. And like, it was like, everything started coming back where it was like, how could you find the savings? How did we not know how to do this? We've always done it this way. You're trying to make it do, make us do it this way. Like, how is your way Right. And, and that's like the culture that I see in my industry is like people are very entrenched in, we've always done it this way. And so uh. basically then it led to like the depression because I was like, well, I'm seeing things that are other people aren't seeing and I can even explain it to them and it's obvious and there's data and there's numbers to back it up. And yet they're just like, no. And you're like, am I living in a world? Like, I don't get it, right? Yeah, that, I don't blame you for falling into depression after that. And that, that was the first job out of college, you said? Yeah, so that was my first like full-time engineering job after college. And then I, I worked there. Yeah, so I worked there about a year. Then I got depressed. I was still working. Um, and then it took me about nine months before I walked into a hospital and said, hey, I need help for depression. 
To be honest, I still somewhat regret walking into the hospital. Really? Yeah, because they put me on an SSRI and literally it started the worst two weeks of my life. Like I couldn't sleep. I went from sleeping six to eight hours a day. Like I was working out every day to basically like I couldn't sleep at all. Like I was sleeping like two to four hours a night and I lost all my energy. I couldn't work out anymore. I couldn't go to the gym or the pool or anything. And just like, it took me like from here to down here. And then like the suicidal ideation got worse. The depression got worse. And then like, it actually, like, I believe it led to a suicide attempt that I don't know if I'll call it that, but Mm -hmm. something that could have happened. And yeah, it's, it's like, it's been a war ever since like with the medication. There's so many areas I want to go into from that. Like we can talk about the, the flaws in the healthcare system for sure. But, um, those nine months before you went into the hospital, what did, how did that look like for you? Yeah, so I mean, I did all I know. And I listened to Joe Rogan and he was saying, like he had some guy on and they were talking about like exercise and nature is your path out of depression. And I was living in a small town in, in the Rocky Mountains and I have access, I had access to some of the most beautiful mountain biking trails in the world and like huge networks of them. And so I was like, well, I'm here, like, let's go. And so from a guy who didn't run, um, cause I was like primarily swimming. Um, yeah. I started running two to four hours a day. I had nothing to train for. It wasn't like something, but like I'm a psycho and that's what I did. And All so nothing. Yeah. I'm like that too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so it's like, that's what I started doing. And like some days I would run 30, 40 kilometers in a day through the mountains. And like, it didn't really help to be honest. Like people say oh, time in nature and then you're like, yeah, it didn't really work for me. And then, yeah, it was like a lot of stuff about like, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of all of this? And I started talking to, like, I talked to life coaches. I went to church I talked to a friend of mine who was like big into religion and, and I was like reading the Bible, but yeah, nothing really stuck and nothing. I mean, still nothing really sticks, but you know, like that's the, you're that's showing the up and you're trying. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to ask you what your support system looked like then. Cause I know it's hard in general, but as a man, I know it can be harder to talk to peers, for instance, or colleagues about this kind of stuff. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's something that that's tough, right? Like even today, there are a few men in my life that I talk to about this. Um, I think it's something I learned, I guess, like my dad was kind of not an emotional guy. And so I think I learned it. And like, especially like when I've been looking for therapists, like my first psychiatrist was a man. And like it was an incredibly ridiculous experience. It sounds like you just walked in and they handed you a prescription. I mean, that might be different. But well, that was the ER doctor. Um, okay. Handing me the prescription, but then the psychiatrist. Like after two weeks, um, I had a falling out with a friend of mine, and my I called my parents and like I was like, hey, I like I'm like literally literally suicidal. Like I need help, and they were like, go back to the hospital you know, get a new prescription and like, tell them you need short-term disability. So I did that. And then when I returned, they put me in, like they, they booked me with the psychiatrist and like, they also put me in a group therapy session. 
so the the psychiatrist, like I was doing talk therapy with him once a week and also doing all the medication stuff. So like it was sleeping meds, there was SSRIs, SNRIs, you know, all the ones. Yeah. And I went to the first session of the group therapy session and it was like, it was supposed to be a two hour session and I lasted about 45 minutes. And what? so, yeah. So I was in the room, there was like three other women who were in the group and they were all like, 40s to 50s and they couldn't none of them could get off the couch and i just couldn't relate to that like this is like my experience was like full-blown gas to the pedal to the metal like insane and they were the people who couldn't get off like out of their bed mm -hmm. and i i couldn't relate to that and so after 45 minutes i like I left and I went for you a mean, 10 kilometer run. <laughs> you mean they couldn't get off the couch because of their depression? Yeah. Like that's how it manifested in them, but it, it hits you differently. Yeah. For me, like I basically, I spend, I spend my whole time thinking about suicide and then I, I can't sit down because I'm just like, mm -hmm. so like anxious, I guess about it. And so I, I, I went in the next week and talked to my psychiatrist about it. And I was like, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, Maybe you're not depressed enough. My mouth is like open right now. I'm speechless. <laughs> and you're I, like, and I knew that right then I was like, oh, this guy's not the guy for me because it's like, I'm literally spending all my waking hours thinking about suicide. And this guy's telling me I'm not depressed enough. Like what is depressed enough then? Like, what oh am I supposed my God. To do to oh my God. Uh, I, I've also encountered that pretty recently, actually. Um, just, and I mean, we won't talk about much about me this time, but like I have been trying to get treatment for my eating disorder for the last like six months or so. And when I first went to the ER, they sent me away because my labs came back normal. And that's not the first time that's happened. So I, I completely can relate to that for you. And I'm sorry that happened. But also, I wanted to say um, that the fact that you did seek help and went through the motions of like getting disability and everything is huge like that that alone is really hard to do um especially if you don't really have people to to support you in that endeavor so yeah i just wanted to validate you and say that i'm, I'm glad oh, that you did that at least yeah and it's funny right like i I've, I've been getting into kind of the statistics behind this and i was looking at statistics around the mining industry because that's where I was working at the time and I came across this article out of Australia and it's actually about construction industry but basically like it's the same kind of dynamic where macho men are working and they were talking about like programs to prevent suicide and they said like the programs are not the issue once the person checks into the program it's not the issue and they, what they were saying, and like Australia has a huge problem, like in construction, there's one construction worker commits suicide every two days in Australia. Are you serious? Yeah. And so they wow. looked, they looked at a hundred men who committed suicide, who worked in construction and they, and they said like, Hey, it's not the program because 93 of those men never asked for help. Never, never went to any program. Seven yeah. men went to the program and then killed themselves. And so it's like the issue and one of the reasons for the, the podcast and for this too is like the dynamic of men asking for help. Like it's still incredibly hard. It takes an incredible amount of courage and vulnerability and strength to do it. But it's still like men are not able to show weakness. It's not something we learn. 
And that's really the biggest barrier is I know I say like, I, I don't know if I wish I sh- like, I don't know if I should have asked for help or whatever, but like at some point it's going to work. Yeah. I'm going to get something that I'm going to find that's going to work. And like, just the same for you. But if you never ask, you never get there. Well, yeah, the answer to an unasked question is no. You have to just keep trying until one of these days it'll click or, you know, that's what I choose to believe at least. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you're you're looking at least because uh, that is hard to seek help, especially as a man. At the time, like what thoughts were going through your head at the time? Did you feel like a failure for doing that? Or like how was your self-esteem at the time when you were getting help? I don't know. Like I I knew I needed help. I was reticent to get it, I guess. My expectations actually going into the hospital and asking for help were much higher. And what I got was very disappointing, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I think I think we have an expect, well, especially me as an engineer, it's like problems are very straightforward. Like physics works the way it works. And like, you know, you can look at a problem, you can say, hey, physically, this is how, you know, forces work. And you can design something that works 100% of the time. Like there's no debate. Like I can build you a bridge and it will work for whatever conditions that you want it to work for, right? But that's the expectation that I have with, with my doctors. And each time, you know, you get a medication and it makes you worse, you go like, well, can I trust them? Like my last one, I went in in September and... I like she knew like I've been on 15 medications and nothing's really worked for me. And and she was like, and I went in and I asked for five days worth of benzos because I was like, I can't sleep. My anxiety is just out, out of the, like the moon. And I want five days just to sleep. And then I'll, like, I'm doing talk therapy, like everything's whatever. And she didn't want to give me that. And she like went to her desk and she's like, well, you could try this new SSRI that I got from the drug company. And I said to her, I was like, well, how can you guarantee me that this one won't work? Like, will actually work. And she just said to me, she's like, well, if I knew if that answer, I would have a Nobel prize. And I'm just like, well, then what trust are we having here? Like, if you want, like, you don't understand the consequence of giving me a medication that doesn't work. I can literally kill myself. That is the consequence. It's not like, oh, I have a bad day and then I come back in two weeks. Like you probably think it is. It's like literally death versus like if I don't take anything, I'm like still shitty, but like I'm not going to kill myself. That's the hardest thing is that you don't know. Like there's no way to guarantee that any of them will work. Yeah. And I think to be honest, like I've seen some stuff around like genetic marker testing or like some sort of brain scan that is supposed to help you or help them understand what medication would work for you. And I think that like I talked to, I did another podcast with a guy and he said like he couldn't get uh, even like he was willing to pay for it himself out of pocket. And he's like in the U S and yet they still won't give it to him. And I was just like, I don't even understand why this is a debate. Like and he was on 30 medic like he had he's at number wow. 30 and i was like man you're better than me i can't keep asking like i just have given up on asking for medication it's exhausting so how long ago was that that you initially sought help for your depression it was 2012 2013 okay and what has your journey looked like since then yeah i mean so, obviously you're here talking to me so 
Yeah. So, I mean, 2013, that was when the like suicide attempt happened. Shortly after that, basically I had my last session with my psychiatrist and he said like, Hey, all you got to do is find a new job and move cities and like, you'll be fine. You know how much I've tried that? (laughs) Well, I, I so when he said that to me, I was like, I already know that. Like, that's not even like, why is this isn't why I'm here? Like my, I'm here to manage where I'm at. (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. Sorry, so that was talking. my last, no, that was my last <laughs> session with him. That was my last session with him. And basically like it took me another six months and I quit and left my job. But basically since the suicide attempt, like I didn't get the help I needed. Cause like he was not, I didn't even tell him about it to be honest. Cause we didn't have that level of rapport. And I just dissociated for about six years and like floated through life. And then like 2019, I started working with like a performance coach and she opened up emotions and it got dark real quick. Mm. And like just all the shit that like I had pushed down came back and like, basically I've been trying to manage it ever since. Wow. Yeah. What, what did that process look like for you when you started opening that door? I mean, it's been a nightmare. Like, like I went to the performance coach to, to be honest, I thought she was more of a business coach. Like I thought I was going to get like marketing and sales at, and that kind of stuff. So, and and that's been hard for me, honestly, like it got dark real quick. And like, I guess my mental health podcast came out of it. The leadership podcast came out of it, but you know, at this last like 2020, I was on another seven or eight different medications and I'm trying therapy, like I'm doing therapy again. And I mean, you're showing you, up. Yeah, like it's still it's still a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, what have been? Um, well, I want to ask you about your podcast first of all, but um, what keeps you going in the day to day? Like, what things have been most helpful for you, just to survive? To be honest, these type of conversations. Um, like I, I love podcasting. I love connecting with people. Like we would have never talked, right? If we didn't, yeah. you didn't have a show, or I didn't have a show, we would have never talked. And I literally had a conversation yesterday with a guy that, well, two people actually, that I never would have talked to had I never had a show. And I just really love having deep conversations about meaningful stuff that yeah. we never, like, and even, even if, like, let's say I would have met you at work or in a restaurant or whatever, like, we never would have talked about, like, suicide and PTSD, yeah. and, right? And it's like... I've never met you in person. And yet like we're having a super deep conversation on a Saturday morning and it's like, it's really cool. Yeah. It's crazy. I'm trying to imagine like what it was like before we had the internet to give us these connections. I mean, I can relate. It's helped me through a lot of dark times as well, just knowing I'm not alone and having the conversations. So when did you first get the idea to start your podcast? Was it by yourself or I know you have a business partner. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've, prior to the mental health podcast, I did run a maintenance and reliability podcast for two and a half years. And so it was like, that was kind of what I was doing. And as emotions opened up for me, I started talking about my mental health struggles on the other, like on the maintenance show. And people were like my, like it's male dominated industries. Right. And it's like, some people were actually reaching out saying like, Hey, like I struggle with this too you know, I 
you know, thanks for talking about it, whatever. And then a few other people were like, Hey, you need a new show. Cause like, we don't want to hear about this, which I understand. It's not for everybody. Yeah. And so I was in a group and I was in a group and Lauren, who's my co-host, she, I, I told the story about my suicide attempt to the group. And as, as you know, like vulnerability open, I call vulnerability a snowplow. It plows room into the room for other people to fall in behind you and to share their stories. And so I told my story about my suicide attempt. And then like literally 20 minutes later, Lauren opened up about crying in a closet at like in college when she was trying. So she's like trying out for team Canada for women's hockey and she's crying in her closet depressed. And I sat there and I was like, this is relatable to me. Not the people who lie in bed and don't do anything, but the people who are doing stuff, but yet are still struggling on the inside. And so like, like literally like a week later, I was like, Hey Lauren, we should start a show. Like, how do you feel about doing it? And then like a week after that, like we started recording and bang, we're out, we're out the door. I love that. Yeah, we definitely need more conversations like this. Um, I've spoken about this on the show in the past, but like since COVID especially, the statistics are rising. Um, I'm in Seattle and we just got voted number one most depressed city in the United States. I mean, <laughs> but, you were always that. <laughs> yeah, but like no one talks about it still. Like even in my day-to-day conversations with my neighbors and friends and family, we, it's not something we really talk about that often. Yeah. I mean, you, the grunge movement was born out of Seattle, so. Yeah, that's true. We're very good at being sad. <laughs> so, yeah, how long have you been doing this podcast? And uh, how's your mental health journey changed since then? I mean, my mental health journey is still, hasn't really changed. Um, the podcast has been around, I guess, six months now. Okay. But, I mean, it's going to keep going. So, we're, I think we're maybe less than six months. I think we're like 15, 16 episodes in, something like that. But it's like really cool. Like I think there there is, there are people like, and you sound like one as well, like what you mentioned about um, redlining and, and stuff is like, there's a lot of us that we don't fit in these boxes that people think or doctors and the, and the textbooks say, this is what a depressed person is, or this is what an anxious person is, or this is what a person with an eating disorder is. And I think that's the biggest thing about this podcast that is there are people out there who suffer really badly, but go to work every day. There are people out there who suffer really badly, but yet they're performing, you know, like Dak Prescott talked about his depression in the spring. And it's like, he's an NFL quarterback. He is a man, he's a leader. And yet he still like suffers like everybody else. And like, there was a, there's like a, a baseball player that I was looking at the story the other day and like he literally shot himself in the head survived and like he was like an mlb like all-star or something and it's like these are the people that we're trying to get to with this show is because like i'm sure the people who can't get out of bed they get the care they want but some people like you and i we don't because we don't check the box of like oh he can't get out of bed like he's depressed It has many different faces and the symptoms can be all across the board. And that's what frustrates me is that there's this, 
uh, yeah, putting people in boxes that happens and it really limits the care you can receive. And so I had a conversation with a friend of mine. She's uh, she's at medical school in Serbia. And, oh, wow. and, and I said to her, I was talking about basically that story that with, with my, my psychiatrist who said I wasn't depressed enough. And she said, yeah, like in one of the classes, like a literally a mental health care class in medical school, they walked around and this guy, apparently the professor is like this famous guy in Serbia who's like legitimately known for being good at psychiatry or whatever. And he walked into the, like they went into like a psych, psych ward and he pointed to like this woman who was sitting in a chair who was like basically not moving and like barely conscious, I guess. And he, he pointed to her and he's like, this is what depression looks like. And, the, and my friend, she was literally like, she's like literally also suicidal and depressed. And she's like, no, like I'm in your class. I'm here. And like, I am suffering too. And it's like completely like throwing out your symptoms and, yeah. and like not, you know, it's like invalidating your experience. Also how shitty for the person in the chair. She's just like, this is it. This is what it looks like. Yeah. Like, a, like you're an animal on display or something that makes me angry i'm actually curious like since you started being more vulnerable with your mental health and making your podcast have you had like how have your real life interactions changed if any yeah i mean um because i know i found it it's gotten pretty awkward at times like when i started being vulnerable on my podcast i i had to come to terms with the possibility that my family and friends would listen and know all my shit so I'm curious uh, to meet you. You're the first other mental health podcast person that I've met. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear about your experience. Yeah. So it's weird, right? Like actually, so the first time I talked about depression on a podcast was December of 2019. It was literally the Christmas week. And the morning I released the podcast, I like literally called my coach because I had a panic attack. I had an anxiety attack. I was sitting at my desk at work and I like my hands started burning and I just like shut down. And what I, I guess I felt was like my community is going to say like, this guy's broken and like, we don't want him anymore. That's kind of my thought. And it didn't work that way. Actually, like it's built connection. And I think you'll know this, but people who don't know this is like, you talk about it, you be vulnerable and it opens space for other people to be vulnerable with you. Yeah. And like my girlfriend, like our relationship's gotten a lot better in this last couple of years. And like people around the world, like you can have conversations like these and like, I don't feel anxious about this conversation. Yeah. I love and, that. Like yeah. that's, uh, that's such a beautiful experience. And I, I found it to be absolutely true as well. Like when you do bear your soul like that and expecting to be ostracized or whatever, it, it just hasn't happened for me at least. Yeah. And, and I mean, cause everyone can relate to this shit. Yeah. The thing I would caution people though. And, and I would say this is like vulnerability. I think it's easier. What doesn't get easier is asking for help. And I still struggle with this is like when I get in dark spots and I'm alone in my house, I still struggle to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I need help. Yeah. And I think like, it's different to have a conversation like this. It's different to talk about, you know, like being suicidal or being depressed or whatever, but it's very much harder. And it's still hard for me is to like pick up the phone and say like, I am at my lowest, I need help. And I think like people out there, like 
obviously please ask for help when you need it but just just know that like it's not like we're we're we're, we're out there going i need help like help me it's it's still yeah. a war <laughs> oh man i i completely agree it's the hardest thing in the world and the shitty thing about it is that once you do ask for help the help is not always guaranteed and I hate to say that because I don't want to discourage anyone from getting help, but that sometimes that's the case and it sucks. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Asking for help is not easy. And even sometimes, like, I don't know if what your experience is like, but I've had actually, I've lost friends. Not, not recently, but in 2012, 2013, I lost friends because of my depression. Mm-hmm. Like I was basically asking, not not asking for help, but just talking about it with them. And like, they were like, I can't handle it. Like you got to figure it out. And I think it's, it's really about in, in a sense, you have to curate your vulnerability and like Brene Brown talks about that in, in a work context, but it's true, right? Like if you're a CEO of a company, like you coming out and saying like, I don't actually know what I'm doing is not a good move. And, and it's no yeah. doubt, like, it's no different than like, you know, with us, it's like, if you're going to dump on your friend, like I'm suicidal today and they're not a mental health professional or they're not equipped with the tools to help you, it's like, can be very hard on them. And I think it's just like, I know I don't want to like, like, I hate that narrative about like, oh, you're a burden because you're depressed, but it's like, you just have to find the right network of people to support you. Yeah. I like that term, curate your vulnerability. I never heard that before. Yeah, I think Brene Brown uses a different word for it, but it's definitely something that's real, right? Is like, and I still struggle with it in the work context. Like when I was in mining, my boss literally sat across the table for me. This would have been 2012 or something. And he said, like, are you okay? Or like, how are you doing? And like, he knew, obviously. And I just was like, I'm fine, whatever. Like, fuck it, I'm out. And then, but but recently, like this last year, like my boss now, he his wife works as like a psychiatric nurse or something. And so he sort of gets it. And so I'm able to have the conversation. However, he's still an engineer. So he goes like, well, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you yep. tried this? And you're like, yes. <laughs> like, I also have tried all these things. <laughs> Do you find yourself um, kind of going into that mindset still? Of like what? Of um, trying to find solutions. Yeah. I mean, so recently where I'm going with my mental health care is, is I'm trying to, well, I'll be getting a referral to a clinic that does uh, TMS, like the magnet, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation and ketamine therapy. I've never heard of that. So, so both of those, they're, they're not really, I wouldn't say they're fringe. They've been around for a while. It's just they're less like if you go to a medical doctor, they're going to prescribe you some medication and they're going to prescribe you generally CBT therapy. That's kind of like their first move. Um, And these are like way down the stream. And so that's where I'm going with that is like I talked to my psychologist and, and I was like, well, I don't want to go back and get more medication, but is there anything else that I could do that would help me? And basically she's like, yeah, try the magnet or try ketamine. And if those don't work, then like basically your last avenue is ECT, like the electroconvulsive therapy. Damn. Yeah. What's but, what, what was the magnet thing called again? A TMS. It's transcranial magnetic stimulation, I think. Wow. I think that's what it stands for. But, but it's like, um, it looks like, uh, I don't know if you remember like the 70s or whatever, but the women on those TV shows that get the perms done. 
So like there's like that head <laughs> thing. And yeah. so you go in and you sit in a chair and they like beam magnets into your head. And I, I think <laughs> from an engineering physics point of view, like in what I understand is the, the magnetic field will change the electrical pathways in your brain. Like that's how magnets work. So mm-hmm. I guess what it does is it changes the magnetic, like the electrical parts in your brain. So we'll see. Wow. I don't know. We'll see if it works. Well, first <sighs> off, we'll see if they give it to me. And then the second. Is yeah. Let's works. not get too far ahead of ourselves. <laughs> um, what do your uh, family and close friends think about all this? Do you share this part of your life with them? I share it with, yeah, like I'm not fully, I mean, my, my parents know that I'm in therapy. They don't know the details of all of it. My girlfriend knows everything and, and like people like Lauren, they know everything. So like I have a few, I have probably four or five people that know basically everything. And then everybody else knows portions. I guess if you, if you listen to my podcast, you know everything too, but. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of scary knowing that you have all this extremely vulnerable information out on the internet and anyone at any time could know all of your dark secrets if they wanted to. I guess the question is, is do you care? And what does that do for them? Yeah. Like I put it out and I know it's out there. It's not like, what are they going to do? Blackmail me with it? Well, no, it's on Apple. Like you can download (laughs) it. Go ahead. As we like start kind of wrapping up, I want to ask about the sports world because I know um, that's the biggest focus of your podcast, right? Mental health, the performance world. Tell, Tell me about how mental health is kind of evolving in that field. Yeah, I mean, you're starting to see it. You're starting to see it with Players Tribune is actually the biggest one. And like people like Kevin Love, um, even Michael Phelps shared about his depression. So you're starting to see people come out and share their stories with depression. I know Theo Fleury does it as well. He was like sexually abused as a a child hockey player. Mm. And so you're starting to see it more and more. But it, the biggest thing, and, and like Lauren has more of an experience with this than I do, is the treatment aspect of mental health in sports. Like she was depressed while she was playing college hockey. And the treatment aspect is very much different than like she also had a hip surgery when she was playing hockey. And so it's oh, like wow. a hip injury is seen as like, you know, you get time off, you get you know, your eight to 10 weeks or whatever the time period is of rest, you do rehab and then you're back on the ice where the mental health part is, is very much seen differently. It's more seen as like, you know, shove it down, figure it out. Like you're just in a rut, like you'll figure it out type of thing. And I think that narrative still has a long way to go. I mean, but it's no different than like, what we talked about earlier where it's like men asking for help is still a problem. And so there's, there's so much there where sport, like, to be honest, like a macho attitude is sports, like women's sports too. Like Lauren had the same experience. Like they're not talking about depression in the locker room. And so, you know, it's like sports is a huge trigger for people. And then also like the whole achievement thing that we talked about at the beginning is Mm -hmm. like, massively detrimental to your mental health yeah and it does suck because um i mean i think you mentioned closer to the beginning exercise is often touted as a a treatment for depression and mental health too and so when that kind of muddies the waters so to speak i mean it's such a like i know you've heard all of this but they go like 
you know, get exercise, go for a walk, get sunshine, go to nature. And you're like, okay, like, let's say, like, if you're not clinically depressed, or you're like, you know, you're having a bad day, like, sure, absolutely, like, it'll take you from a four to a five. But it is not a solution to anything clinical. And I think also the people that they recommend that to do tend to be the ones who are stuck on their couches or can't get out of bed or whatever. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And like, for me, I mean, I've tried all that, to be honest, I even the self-care aspects of it, like I find, and maybe it's my expectation for what it should do, but like I find it like so minute that I don't know how I feel about it. Like I almost feel in a sense that like people recommend it because everybody else recommends it. And I'm like, well, does it actually move the needle? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I have really conflicting thoughts on that too. We talk about a lot about um, self self soothing right now in treatment, and mm-hmm. I I'm kind of I don't like that term. I don't know why. I just it's self soothing in what sense? Yeah, um, just like we talk a lot about distress tolerance. Like, uh, do you know what suds are? No. Like uh, uh, units of distress. Like basically, when your distress is super high, what what things you can do for yourself to bring them back down. So it could oh, be yeah. going on a walk or exercise or lighting a candle, or stuff like that. It's like, you know, you can rely on those only so much. But after a while, you do need to get down to the deeper issues. And that's the hard part for lots of people. Yeah. So yeah, I, I've done the same thing in, in therapy. My My therapist called it like polyvagal theory. And so I guess there's three states that you can be in you can be in a ventral vagal which is like how we are now where you're like relaxed and you're fine and then there's like sympathetic which is like like basically an anxiety fight or flight state and then there's dorsal vagal which is your like depressed state and like basically it's the same thing like what activities can you do by yourself what activities can you do with somebody else that bring you back to ventral vagal yeah and there's no guarantee yeah (laughs) I hate I hate to leave people with like this message, but it's true. Like I don't want to lie about it and say you know do this this and this and you'll be better. Like that is like the thing I love about talking to other people about this stuff is just kind of commiserating together. You know. I think if if people are gonna take anything from this, it's more about finding what works with for you, and that's going to be different based on your diagnosis based on who you are, how you were raised, all these different factors. And, you know, it's no different than the medication, like what works for you, it maybe not won't work for me or what works for me, maybe it won't work for you. And that's the really the hardest part is like, the hardest part is the trial and error. The hardest part is picking yourself off the mat after something else doesn't work. Because for me, that's, it's, it's like, honestly, it's devastating. And I think like, that's the hardest part is like, just keep getting up and keep, you know, they didn't ring the bell, like keep, keep fighting because like, otherwise you like, I don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. Have you found um, anything to be helpful, even a little bit like these last few months? Like, what are you currently doing for your mental health besides being in therapy? Yeah. Which is huge, by the way. Yeah. I think, I think. EMDR, like if you have trauma, EMDR is probably your best bet from what I've done. I also have been doing IFS therapy, which like we do kind of a combination. And so 
IFS therapy is intra-family systems. And it's really interesting. And I think it, it's really good. And so really what it does is basically you have a n- number of parts in your brain for who you are. And so there are parts that, that are managers and firefighters, and basically they try to do things to keep you alive and safe and all these things. And it's, I think it's helpful to understand that sometimes when you get in these spaces and you want to fight somebody or you get in these spaces and you feel like you don't feel like yourself, it's, it's nice to feel that it's actually not you and it's some learned behavior or some experience in your childhood led you to believe that this was the way to go. And then you sort of max that out. I think it's, it's helpful for, for me at least because I get in fights with people and I'm like, and then I come out of it and I feel really bad. Like I feel shame because I'm like, this isn't like, who am I? And it's like, well, it was just like one of your parts that took over and it doesn't make it better, but I think it just helps you understand like where it's coming from. Yeah, for sure. I like the idea that everyone is just slowly getting better, a little bit more better every day until we die. <laughs> Sometimes that's my only reason for getting out of bed. It's like, okay, all I have to do today is just be a little better than I was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good attitude to have, right? And I think, yeah, you're, you're just absolutely right, Christina. There's no way that, that you just have to, you just have to keep moving because if you don't, if you stop moving, then that's it. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, just thanks for having me, Christina. And yeah, thank yeah, you. Like, yeah. <laughs> Tell the listeners where they can find you and all your stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to find me, I'm on LinkedIn, Rob Kalvarowski. That's probably, that's basically the only social network I use. Um, but if you want to find my podcast, you can go anywhere. Probably this one is, is available. It's on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, like the whole whack of them. Uh, Dismantling the High Performance Narrative is the show about mental health and performance. And then I also have a leadership podcast called The Leadership Launchpad Project. It's about basically people-centric leadership, and it's about challenging basically industry to think more in this growth mindset improvement type of way versus that we've always done it this way. Yeah. And where can they find both those podcasts? Do you have a website or anything like that? Your best bet, yeah. If you go to robsreliability.com, I have links to all that stuff or just go to cool. Apple, they're on there too. <laughs> robsreliability.com, cool. I'll definitely provide that in the show notes for anyone who wants to find you. Perfect. Thanks so much again. Thank you, Christina. This I, is a good I way really to start the day. This. I feel like rejuvenated now. <laughs> Me too, I'm, I'm ready. And, and actually it's funny, right? Like they opened up the gyms here yesterday. And so I'm gonna be going to the gym for literally the first time in a year. <gasps> in about an hour. So I'm excited. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be a good day then. I know the first, first somewhat return to normalcy. (laughs) Oh, crossing my fingers, crossing my fingers. (laughs) Well, you have a good rest of your day, Rob. Thanks, Christina. Thanks. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Pickles and Vodka. If you could relate to anything we talked about, you can follow the podcast at Pickles and Vodka Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook by typing in Pickles and Vodka Podcast. You can also email me at Pickles and Vodka Podcast at gmail.com if you have any stories or if you just want to say hi. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Stay safe.